Good evening. Tonight is Thursday night, September 3rd, 2020. The goal of this mini-series is to help make that these high holidays, 5781, should be the best ever in our lives. It's an ambitious goal, but what I hope to share with you over the next couple of weeks through Yom Kippur, I guess through Sukkos, that, that's the goal because I think there are reservoirs of deep meaning that we will be able to draw from this year uniquely. And I think that there are some special opportunities and that's part of what I want to share over the next few weeks. So tonight is a, a specific topic. Since I was a child, I, I don't believe ever in my life since I was a child, I went for three full months without attending synagogue. I didn't always come on time. I didn't always daven every word. I didn't always pay attention. Sometime, uh, sometimes I was playing in the back, but three months without attending synagogue, as I and so many of others have done this year. Of course, this year, it is required, it has been required according to Jewish law because of the pandemic. And many people still have not returned due to safety precautions and they're doing the right thing. If they need to be careful because of medical conditions or other reasons, that is absolutely the right thing not to come to shul. Taking care of our safety and our health comes first. Some of us, like here at Adath, are coming back to shul. We currently have our minion outside in our tent every morning and every evening. Some places are davening inside. Hopefully, this trend will not be sidetracked by a second wave. I say hopefully, and I really mean I'm not completely optimistic about that, but hopefully. But as we come back to shul, and even if this is going to be delayed, so this is something that we should keep in mind to let it ferment and um, uh, resonate and uh, be absorbed uh, in a way of looking forward to when we are back in shul. We should take that as an opportunity to reboot, to re-engineer our shul experience. Now, there are several aspects of this that I plan to discuss with you over the next weeks and months. There are a number of things that I think that we have gained that we can bring back when we are in shul in a more normal way. And I think that there are certain things about the way we were in shul before that we may want to leave behind and change or improve or develop as we come back. We'll discuss that. For tonight, I want to discuss one area of this in light of the fact that there are many people who will be returning to shul, many of them for the first time for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, whether it's inside or it's outside, or one hour or two hour or three hour. But when we come back to shul, we will be praying together with other people. Now, prayer certainly is, in the words of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the language of the soul in conversation with God. So clearly the primary aspect of prayer is between ourselves and God, that spiritual conversation. But public prayer with a minion in shul is also an interpersonal experience. We are relating to each other. Famously, the Arizal, the great Kabbalist, Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, 
instituted, and there are many people who follow this, that before a person begins to pray every day, a person should say the following words, I accept upon myself I accept upon myself to observe and to fulfill the mitzvah to love my fellow as I love myself. And just as there are guidelines and expectations for our conversation with God, there are also guidelines and expectations for how we treat each other in shul. This is, in a sense, the practical applications of this goal, to love your fellow as you love yourself, to treat someone else the way you would want to be treated. And there are many different applications of that that are relevant in shul during prayer. And it is on this subject that I'd like to focus tonight. What I want to share with you is partially based on an essay written by Rabbi Daniel Feldman, and it is partially based on some of my own experiences in shul over the years. When we pray, our minds need to be focused on God, on our conversation with God, without distraction. And therefore, especially during certain parts of the prayer service, we are not to interrupt with any other speaking or activity. And the prayer service has different levels of the seriousness of that. For example, when we're saying the silent Amidah, the Shemona Esrei to ourselves, we are not supposed to interrupt that for any purpose unless there is some grave danger going on. Between Baruch Hu and the Amidah, the, the paragraphs of the Shema, Shema Yisrael in the morning, and the paragraphs that come before and after that, also we are not supposed to interrupt for idle talk. When the reader's repetition is going on and the Kedusha is recited, we're not supposed to interrupt the Kedusha. And other parts of davening, we're not supposed to interrupt. And this is a very important requirement. And I'll have a little bit more to say about this later. But what about saying hello to someone? What about greeting someone when they come in? Now, I want to differentiate and make sure that I'm being clear about what I mean to say. I'm discussing greeting someone when they enter for the first time. I'm not talking about having a conversation with them about uh, where they were this week and where they're going next week and what their children are doing during davening. That is not appropriate. But I'm talking about a greeting to acknowledge someone's presence, to show happiness, to, to be able to greet someone. So this is a very complicated subject because on the one hand, we are supposed to greet someone when we see them. We learn this line in Pirkei Avos, that we should greet every person when we see them. It doesn't say except in shul. Of course that applies in shul. But how do we balance that with those parts of the davening that we're not supposed to interrupt? This is a very complicated subject. There are many fine distinctions that are evaluated within classic halakhic commentaries. I want to make it simple for you. I'm sharing my own opinion and I'm sharing my own practice and I'm sharing what I tried to have done at a death. It's much more simple. Every person that comes in the door should be treated as if they are a king or a queen deserving of being greeted in a proper manner. Again, I'm not talking about having the whole conversation. I'm not talking about continuing to discuss all the hockey games. But 
to greet someone that they understand that they are welcome and they are made to feel welcome, we should greet that person as if they are a king and a queen. Practically speaking, in my opinion, that means that if I am in the middle of my own private Amidah, I would not interrupt. I would wait till I'm finished and then go over to the person to greet them. If I'm in the middle of saying Kedusha, I would not go over and greet the person. I would wait till we finish Kedusha and then I would go over and greet that person. However, outside of those two portions, at any other time in the davening, in my opinion, a person who comes in should be treated like they are royalty, deserving of the honor of a greeting. And I take that from a lesson that I have shared with you, and I'm sure you are familiar with from other sources, a very famous lesson, a lesson that our rabbi teaches about Avraham, our forefather Abraham. The Torah says that God appeared to Avraham to visit him. And in the middle of that narrative, the Torah says that Avraham saw in the distance there were three strangers who were walking by. And our rabbis explain that Avraham interrupted his conversation with God in order to be able to go greet the guests and invite them into his tent. And based on that, our rabbis teach that it is a greater mitzvah to show hospitality to a stranger even than to speak to God. <clears throat> and the point is, it's not a contradiction. That is, the way God wants us to serve him is by treating every one of his children like a king and a queen who should be greeted and welcomed properly, with honor. So, based on that, the way that we serve God is by being particularly aware when someone comes in and to offer a greeting. This is, um, the next subject I want to mention is also something that is not relevant for us right now, but I share it again in the spirit of hopefully by uh, discussing it and learning about it, maybe we will get to the point where it's rele relevant. And that is to daven on an airplane. So, um, especially on flights to and from Israel, it is quite common, especially if it is, if there are a lot of religious Jews, and the flight takes 10, 11, 12 hours, so the time for davening one or more prayers will pass. And uh, it is a very common thing to see a group of men gathered together to form a minion in order to daven on the plane. A very important theme of everything that I want to discuss tonight is that when we attempt to serve God, it can never be at the expense of imposing on other people. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter said it very famously when he said, when you put on your talis, and you know, we put on a talis and we put one side over this shoulder, another side over this shoulder, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter said, make sure you don't let the tzitzis, the strings at the end, slap the person next to you. When we serve God, it can't be by lowering our concern for how we treat other people. The fact is, to form a minion on an airplane is not a considerate thing to do. Number one, it disturbs other passengers. It wakes up passengers who may be trying to sleep. It interferes with the staff because they can't get through, they can't get by. And in my opinion and my practice, and I'm not alone in this, there are many 
I'm not putting myself in the same category, but there are many great halakhic authorities who have ruled, and I'm just a small person who follows that ruling. I do not join a minion on an airplane. I have joined a minion in the airport at the gate, away from other people, so it doesn't bother them. But, and a person will say, well, but it's a minion, it's a mitzvah. Yes, it is a minion and it is a mitzvah, but it does not come at the expense of irritating other people. I remember one time I was on a plane, a flight to Israel, and there were a group of people forming a minion, and I was sitting in my seat, and the person who was going to lead the minion came over to me, and he said, would you please come join us? You're number 10, you'll make the minion. So I said to him, uh, uh, I said to him, listen, I, I respect what you want to do. I don't tell anybody else what to do, but my own practice is I do not daven with a minion on a plane because I worry about how it interferes with the comfort of the other people. So this person says to me, well, but I'm saying cottage for my father. And if we don't make a minion, I'll miss, I'll miss saying Kaddish because by the time we get there, the time for davening will be finished. It'll be time for the next prayer. I, I, have, to, I have to say Kaddish for my father. So it was not the time for me to engage in a long um, discussion on this subject. And uh, to be perfectly honest, he was not particularly interested in my opinion uh, at that point. Um, but, but the point is, what kind of merit? Why do you want to say Kaddish for your father that passed away? Because it's a merit. Because it's a mitzvah. What kind of a merit is it that you accomplished saying Kaddish and you woke up people who were sleeping and you bothered staff that were trying to get their, their work done? It's not a merit. It's not a schus. And, and that, type of, that type of analysis needs to go into every aspect of our service of God. It cannot be at the expense of other people's comfort. A related issue, and that has to do with the volume of our prayers. So ideally, prayer should be joyful. It should be aloud. Hopefully it should be singing. But at the same time, our prayers should not distract others. So, in some places where everyone is singing along, that's great, it's beautiful, it's a fantastic thing. It's certainly a goal of mine to have that kind of joyous, musical davening here at Adath. That's the goal. But, for example, during the private Amidah, when everyone is speaking silently, or at other times when everyone is quiet, for one person to say their prayers noticeably loudly, that is something that is distracting. And a person should be careful in the way in which they pray not to act in a distracting manner. A couple of other examples along the same line. If someone is praying, I should do everything in my power not to interrupt their concentration. So, Jewish law sources say, let's say, for example, a person is standing and they're praying the Amidah, the silent standing prayer. It's not the right thing for me to walk directly in front of them while they're doing that because it might be distracting. You come into a person's peripheral vision and they, they're wondering, are you coming up to speak to me? Is... Uh, it, it, it could interrupt their concentration. And so Jewish law requires that we should keep our distance so as not to distract someone who is in the midst of prayer. The same thing goes in reverse. A person ought not to pray in a place where it causes others not to be able to move around them. I must tell you, this is something that I see it quite often, and I, I, I just I wonder what the thought process is of a person who um, starts their Amidah, the silent prayer, where we're standing with our feet together, we're not moving for whatever it is, five, six, seven minutes, and they do that just in the middle of the aisle. 
so that nobody can get in, nobody can get out. People have to go in, people have to go out, people have to use the restroom, people have to, people have to come in. And this person is standing. So just as it is the right thing not to interfere with someone who is praying, it is also the right thing to be careful not to pray in a way that inconveniences or blocks other people. Standing in the doorway, standing in the aisle is not a good practice. And a person should be careful about that. And, and when I said the words, I can't imagine what a person would be thinking. Of course, the truth is they were not thinking. Nobody thinks I'm going to block the aisle. That's not what a person thinks. A person simply doesn't think. A person is, is uh, thinking about praying to God and speaking to God and is just not aware of what their, the impact of their uh, uh, standing or sitting has on someone else. But that's the lesson that I'm trying to share. That is an intrinsic part of prayer to be aware not only of the effect that we have on God, but to be aware of the effect that we have on the others around us in shul. There's an area of Jewish law that is very important. It has to do with when are we allowed to use an object that belongs to someone else when we are in shul. As a general rule, it is prohibited for me to make use of someone's object unless I have asked for and received permission. It is prohibited for me to use it, even if I am certain that if I asked, that person would say yes. But it doesn't matter. Taking something without permission, we have a word for it. It's called stealing. And that's what it is, stealing. Jewish law understands that there is a narrow category where there can be created a presumption that a person would give their permission <clears throat> for their object to be used by another person. However, <clears throat> there are a number of conditions that must be met. <clears throat> this comes up if you come to shul and there's someone's private sidur and you want to use it, or let's say you want to use somebody's talis or borrow a pair of tefillin that belong to somebody. So, such an object that is being used for a mitzvah can be used without the owner's permission if all the following conditions are met. Number one, the owner has not expressed his refusal to allow someone to use their object. Sometimes you have that. A person who says, listen, you know, just generally, it's well known. I don't give permission. I don't want anyone using my tissue box, my uh, whatever it is, whatever it is. Number two, it must be where it is not possible to get the owner's explicit permission. If the owner is available, you have to ask. You cannot rely on an assumption. An assumption is what you rely on in the absence of the data. But if the person is available to ask, you have to ask them. Number three, you have to take care not to damage the object in any way and to return it to its original place in its original condition. That means fold it up the way it was, put in the place that it was, not taken away to a different location, returned in the same condition. If all of those are there, then that becomes permissible to borrow and is an exception to the general rule that would be considered stealing. Of course, there are certain things in many shuls that a person may believe that they own that in fact they do not. Let's start with a person's seat. Nobody owns their seat in shul. Maybe 
you donated a lot of money and there's a plaque on the seat, I hate to break it to you, that does not mean the seat belongs to you. What that means is the seat belongs to the shul. You donated to the shul. You didn't buy a chair. It's not your chair to take home. It's a seat that indicates that you made a generous contribution to the synagogue. Very nice. Thank you very much. But it does not mean that you have ownership rights over it. And if you come into shul and someone is sitting in a seat where you normally sit, the right thing is to sit in a different seat. The wrong thing is to go over to that person and say, in any manner, you're sitting in my seat. That is a terrible thing to do. A person should never do that. When you speak to people who have been to the synagogue one time in their lives and they never return, and you say to them, what happened so terrible that you went once and you never came back? That line is close to the top of the list. Someone came over to me and said, not hello, not how are you, not good Shabbos, not what's your name, you're sitting in my seat. A lot of damage has been done in the Jewish world because of that. Also, the Siddur in Shul, the prayer book in Shul, that has your name in the book plate inside is not your Siddur. You donated that to the Shul. Thank you very much. But it doesn't mean that that Siddur belongs to you. You don't have a right to go over to someone and say, oh, that's my Siddur because it's got my name in it. It has your name that says that you donated it to the synagogue. It's not yours. And to insist on something like that is a very wrong and insensitive thing to do. There is a practice that we have currently during this crazy, unusual period that is so beneficial. If I had the ability to do it, I would continue it when we return. Because of social distancing, we have the practice that we do not call up individuals to have an aliyah. One person who is reading from the Torah, that person takes the Torah out of the ark, that person has all of the aliyos, says the brachos before and after, that person does hagba, lifts and ties the Torah, and that person takes it back to the ark and puts it away. One person. It's an amazing thing. In all of the weeks that we've been davening in our tent, there has not been one argument or complaint. I didn't get an aliyah. Why wasn't I called up to the Torah? Why was I not given an honor? Because everyone understands there's only one person and it's for a specific reason and that's how we're doing it. I would love to be able to continue this into the future. The problem is, it is not the right thing for a person to insist on wanting to be honored, wanting to be noticed, wanting to be called. Those are not good quality traits. They're not good quality traits when they come to being a chazan, to leading the service, to be a person who feels entitled, unless, of course, it's your job, where you actually are entitled. But in a situation where different people are asked, no one is entitled. The person that the Gabbai who is in charge of appointing someone, the person that he asks, that is who is entitled. No one else. The person who is called for an aliyah is entitled to the aliyah. Because you show up, you're not entitled. Being insulted because you were not asked to lead the prayers is the biggest disqualification from being worthy of leading prayers. And unfortunately, it's all too common. There are people with thin skins and feel that they're entitled to this honor or that honor. The right thing is to refuse honors. 
and when approached to, to take some honor, a person should say, I would rather go to somebody else. That's the right approach. Anything that introduces an element of combativeness, of disharmony within shul, is anathema to prayer. It destroys the atmosphere. It destroys the ability to concentrate on prayer. It is more than just a slight against the others. It also creates a desecration of God's name. Rabbi Avadi Yosef is among many, many great scholars who say, often we'll hear a person says, uh, I want to lead the prayers or I want to receive an aliyah because, uh, because I have sight, because I'm saying Kaddish, because someone passed away. And then if they don't get the honor that they feel that they're entitled to, they get upset. As I said before, the soul of the person you love that you're trying to create a merit for, they will profit much more from harmony than from you starting an argument about whether you should get an honor. There is a blood sport in many shuls. It's not so bad at a death, but we could use a little improvement here also. There's a blood sport, and it goes like this. Main part of the, Torah, of the Shabbos morning service and other services is reading from the Torah. When we read from the Torah, it's got to be read accurately. If a person reads the wrong word, or reads the word in a way that changes the meaning, it's got to be corrected so that it's correct. In some shuls, it becomes a blood sport. Who can notice the most mistakes and who can yell them out, not only the loudest, but in the most angry tone? Let me tell you something. It's not easy to read from the Torah. There are no vowels, there's no punctuation, you got to memorize it. And all of a sudden, people start yelling at you. It's not easy. Okay, so each person should try to have a person who is trained and capable. Thank God at Adath we have a wonderful person who does a fantastic job. But anybody can make a mistake. If there is going to be a correction, it must be done in a quiet and discreet manner. Not simply everybody shouting out, and there are a lot of places like this. Everyone starts shouting out, shouting, 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 yeah, you made a mistake, man, go back, go back. That's not the way to do it. And also it requires the person who's making the correction to be quite knowledgeable. Because the law is, it is only necessary to correct someone when what they said was a difference in meaning. But it's not so easy to know. There are many mistakes that a person can make that don't necessarily change the meaning of the word. The word es or ace, for example. The word lach or lacha. Many, many other examples where a person made a mistake, but it doesn't change the meaning. We are not supposed to correct that. <coughs> it's the right thing for people in a shul to stand down if you come to shul, you do not have to be the protector of the Torah reading. Leave that for the rabbi. It's his job. Leave that for the person standing next to the Torah reader who can say it softly in his ear so no one else has to hear. You don't have to be on guard. Let it be. Just pay attention to following the words in your Chumash. Pay attention to what it means. Don't worry. Don't worry about anything else. Talking during davening, as I mentioned before, is a very big problem. Again, one of the beautiful benefits of our prayers over the last couple of months in the tent with social distancing. It's an amazing thing to have six, six feet separating each person. It's so quiet during Minyan. No one's talking. It's beautiful. How do we find a way to bring that back in when we're packed like sardines? Okay, I don't have the answer yet. It's not only a transgression against God. 
how can you be supposed to be talking to God and you're gossiping with someone next to you? But more than that, it destroys the atmosphere for the people around you. When someone else is talking, I can't concentrate. So often it happens to me that someone will come up to me and say, you know, I'm trying to daven, I'm trying to concentrate, and, and these people, they're talking nonstop through the whole thing. I, I don't want to, uh, I hesitate to mention this. It happens when the rabbi is speaking also. Okay, I don't want to talk, I don't want it to appear that I'm only concerned about when I'm speaking. But some people, <laughs> this may be a surprise, some people actually come to shul and want to hear what the rabbi is saying. I know it sounds strange. I know. And, and there are two people behind them, in front of them, to the side of them. They're talking nonstop, full volume, unoblivious to everybody else. It's very, very distracting. It's very disturbing. Now, the truth is that talking during davening is a symptom of a bigger problem. It's not the talking that's the problem. Talking is a problem during davening. But it's a symptom that a person is not praying. Because if you're talking, you're not praying. And if you're not praying, it means you're not re realizing the meaning of prayer, the potential of prayer, the obligations of prayer. So what are we supposed to do about it? Well, there's one very important lesson, and I ask you to all remember this. Shushing is also talking. Very often it happens that someone is talking, and another person is upset by it, and they may react in an angry way. Number one, it doesn't help. And number two, it just deteriorates the mood and creates dissension and tension and, and uh, negative feelings. Shushing is not the way. Banging on the table is not the way. Embarrassing someone is not the way. What is the way? Well, I've been doing this now for 36 years, and I'm not sure I know. I have a variety of tools in my toolbox that I try to use. In general, I would give myself a B minus of success in being able to have decorum and shul, maybe a C plus, if I'm being honest. But I know what's not the right way. What's not the right way is raising the temperature of the aggressiveness in the moment. We'll have to find other ways. But shushing doesn't help. And this is part of a wider point. Anything that takes away from harmony, and peacefulness in shul is something that must be avoided. Even if under other circumstances it might be appropriate to say something or to protest, not in shul. Okay, yes, once in a thousand times, yes. But destroying the harmony and the peacefulness in shul is very, very serious. And it needs to be taken with that kind of seriousness and that hesitation. Because when we do that, we don't only create ill will. We interfere with the prayers of others. Because who can concentrate on prayer when there are people yelling and arguing and angry looks and angry gestures? It takes away from the entire prayer experience. Here's a really important rule. Fundamental. Don't embarrass anyone in shul. If someone does something and they're making a mistake, don't call out loud, no, it's the other door you're supposed to pull. 
so many examples of this. Go over quietly and tell the person in a nice way, don't embarrass someone. On that list that I told you about before, people who went to shul once and never returned. Uh, I, I was, uh, some guy told me I was sitting in a seat and then I tried, they told me to, to lift the Torah. I didn't do it the right way. People started yelling at me. Who wants to be in such a place? Who wants to, who wants, who wants that? We have to be understanding. We have to welcome, never to embarrass. Here's a specific example. This comes up a lot. So a minion requires 10 men, 10 adult Jewish men. Sometimes you come to a minion and um, everyone's standing around waiting. It appears that they're waiting for a minion. So you count. I count 10 men. Why are we waiting? So of course, when you have that question in your mind, you're going to yell out, why are we waiting? We have a minion. There are 10 people here. It is possible that you were at that moment in a group of people that does not know how to count up to 10 and they will actually appreciate that you're telling them, oh, now we've reached 10 people. We can start to daven. That's possible. If there is a rabbi present, if there is an intelligent person present, and, and the two don't go to always go together, so it's two separate categories. If you want to ask that question, ask it privately, ask it quietly. Because here's a scenario that often happens. One of the 10 people who appears to you to be an adult Jewish male may not be any one of those three. And in our society, it could be any one of those three. Specifically, you could have a person who's attending services because they're in a conversion program. And they may look like everybody else. Thank God. They're serious about prayer. I wish all the Jews who are born Jewish would have the same fervor of prayer of some of the people who go through a Geras program, a conversion program. But if there's a reason that the group is not starting, it could be there's a reason. And you don't want to embarrass someone. Can you imagine if you were the person for whatever reason and someone says, how come, oh, there's a million, how come we're not starting? And you are the person? It could be very embarrassing. There's a story I've told before. And this story is like if I wanted to reduce this, I, I see I've now been speaking for almost 45 minutes and I'm about to finish. I'm, I'm really just two more points that I want to mention. But if I wanted to give the message to you in, in three minutes, this story conveys everything that I mean to, to share with you tonight. And it's a story that not only did I hear it and I have told it and I have repeated it, it is a story that I have tried to assimilate into myself. It is a story by which I try, I'm not always successful, but I try to run my rabbinic life with this story. Because this story is what shul should be. I heard this story from Rabbi Effie Buchwald. Rabbi Effie Buchwald in New York is one of the great tzaddikim of our generation. Among many, many accomplishments, he is the first to start what has become known as a beginner's service, meaning a type of prayer service that is adapted for people that do not have an extensive Jewish background. So that prayers are said in Hebrew and in English, things are explained, people can ask questions. It's an amazing kind of thing. We incorporate certain aspects of that into many things that we do. I had the privilege to learn how to do a beginner service from Rabbi Buchwald almost 35 years ago. And I've been doing it in various uh, 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 manners and contexts 
ever since. So, of course, a beginner service, of course, you're attracting all kinds of people. Rabbi Buchwald tells the following story. It was a Shabbos morning. Rabbi Buchwald lives on the Upper West Side of New York. He was conducting his beginner service, and they had the Torah reading. So, you know, they, they say to a, a man who's there, Ya'amod, come up. They call him up for Aliyah. A lot of people don't exactly, in that service, exactly know what to do. So he shows them, take your talis, touch here, kiss this, say this blessing, say this blessing, read here, point along. All right, that's how it goes. He calls up this man. And so the, the first part of the Aliyah is the person who's called up for the Aliyah, the man who's called up for the Aliyah, says a bracha. Asher bocha banu, says a bracha blessing. Sometimes a person says it out loud, everyone can hear it. That's actually the preferable thing. Sometimes a person says it quietly. And only the people like the huddle, the people standing around the Torah can hear it. The man is standing next to Rabbi Buchwald. Rabbi Buchwald is reading from the Torah that morning. The man leans over to Rabbi Buchwald and he whispers in his ear, I'm not Jewish. Now, you have to understand, so Rabbi Buchwald is standing there and this man has leaned and whispered into his ear. Now, everybody knows to be called to the Torah for an aliyah, a person needs to be Jewish. To recite a bracha, a person needs to be Jewish. But but it's right here, it's... It's right, it's right now. What are we going to do? What, what, what do I do? And so Effie says he did this instinctually. Instinctively. But it comes from the essence of who Rabbi Effie Buchwald is. And it should be at the heart of what a shul should be. So they're standing together. The man whispers in his ear, I'm not Jewish. And Rabbi Buchwald says, Amen. And he starts to read. Now, is that halakhically the correct thing to do? No, it is not halakhically the correct thing to do. But if you have a choice between, in that circumstance, between what is halakhically correct and taking the chance, God forbid, to embarrass someone, what are you going to do? Tell them, go sit down and call somebody else and embarrass someone? You just give out a loud amen like you just heard the bracha and you keep reading. And I promise you, that's what God wants you to do. I want to finish with this. A number of great scholars have shared this idea. Rebbe Elimelech Bar Shaul says this. The Rav, Rav Salvechik says this. When we come to shul and we daven together, we pray together as a group, we form a symphony. A soloist can be brilliant. A person can play an instrument by themselves and it can be so beautiful. And you can pray at home and there can be benefits to praying at home. I personally felt during the three months that I was davening only at home and others have told me there are certain benefits. I go at my own pace. I'm not rushed. I'm not distracted by anything. For me, my prayers were much more heartfelt during the time that I was at home. It can be brilliant. It can be beautiful. But the music of a soloist can't compare to an orchestra. It becomes richer and deeper and so much more beautiful. It creates a whole new experience when there's an orchestra. And that's what happens when we daven together. On the spiritual level, God sees this congregation, not just these, this collection of individuals, but this congregation. And each one supports the other. You have one person who 
is excels in studying Torah, and another person who excels in kindness to other people, and another person who excels in the way they treat their family, and another person excels in other kinds of ways. And everyone has shortcomings also, but th- but the strength of one compensates for the shortcoming of another, and together we appear before God as this beautiful symphony. We make this music that is much more beautiful than any of us could make on our own before God. But that also means that every one of us is part of that symphony. And here's the thing about an orchestra. Every single member of the orchestra is necessary. Yes, there is someone standing in the front and someone standing in the back. Yes, there is someone who plays longer and someone who plays shorter. But in an orchestra, if any single member were to be absent, the entire thing would be different. Every single person who is present, every human being, is contributing something that is unique that is making the final symphony that would not be the same without them. And they're deserving of respect. Every single person who comes should be treated like a king or a queen, like royalty. Because every one of us is a member of the orchestra. My friends, I wish you a great night and a wonderful Shabbos. And I hope that all of us can look forward soon to putting into practice these very applicable practical lessons. To treat others as we want to be treated in shul.